Welcome back to The Corner of Story and Game, a podcast about writing and game design and how it impacts storytelling. Today I have Matt Forbick back on the mic. Matt is an accomplished writer and game designer, which makes him perfect to answer a couple questions around world building and game mechanics and how the two interact. Matt, thank you for taking the time to sit down and talk. Sure, of course. Happy to be here. Not too long ago, I saw you posted on social media. Uh, you were commenting on the differences between world building for games and building worlds for novels. And you mentioned how it's so much more work <laughs> building worlds for games. Uh, yeah. Well, to... I mean, it's. I was commenting not just on the fact that uh, I was building worlds, but building rules for games takes a lot of work, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, for instance, the Marvel game, although I was really complaining about that moment, was we were, I was wrestling with uh, rules for things like like Giant Man and Ant-Man, right? Like sizing suddenly becomes an issue. And can you throw cars and can you shrink buildings? And I'm like, man, this is, you know, I got enough math and physics in my head. I you know, <laughs> did two years of engineering in college. And, uh, so I'm trying to make it faithful, but also at the same time, trying to make it fun and not too much of a pain in the ass. You have to break out a, a calculator or a, you know, high level calculus to figure out what the heck's going on at a given point. So that's always a challenge. For world building, I think that it is more of a challenge to do games than it is for novels because uh, with world build, with games it is because uh, with a game, you're trying to provide somebody a toolkit to tell potentially an infinite number of stories, right? You know, essentially a limitless number of stories. And while if you're just writing a novel, all you have to focus on is the things that are relevant to your story, whatever the heck that happens to be. And while those cross over quite a bit and overlap quite a bit, and you want to have more probably than you're showing in the story, uh, you you can kind of fudge or hand wave stuff that you don't care about, right? right? Or that's not particularly pertinent at the moment, right? So if I'm if I'm doing a story where you know it's suddenly time uh, train timetables matter a lot, then I have to figure out that stuff, right? Uh, but if I if I'm not doing that, then I can just ignore all that stuff, right? Um, and that makes it a lot simpler for you, right? Uh, however, if you're doing a game, you want to be able to provide people with all those things so that they don't have to go look them up or figure them out because uh, the dirty secret of especially tabletop role-playing game design is that anybody can do it. You're just making things up, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, what they're paying you for is to make those things up for them so they don't have to or to give them a framework in which they can do those things easily and quickly uh, without having to do too much labor. Right on. I always look at myself when I'm doing those kind of things as uh, you're paying me to do the work for you ahead of time so that it makes it simpler for you when you're at the table. Honestly, when you're at the table, you can pretty much just go, Meh, it kind of looks good and, you know, it's okay. But right. uh, that's why I get paid money to do this stuff is because theoretically I have an idea what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> I can express it well to people. So. Right. And you provide consistency and a coherence that maybe somebody yeah. who's new to the game wouldn't have. And that's that's the same for world building as it is for uh, for rules design, right? I mean, the rules have to be consistent too. You don't want to have a different subsystem for everything that happens in the game, right? right. Uh, first edition D and D and original D and D were terrible for that kind of stuff. It's like, oh, well, you want to grapple somebody instead of hitting them with the sword. Well, there's a whole other system for that, and it bolts out here, yeah. and it bears no resemblance at all to the rest of the stuff, and then. The resolution mechanic is entirely different. And then when you try to cross them over, like, okay, now I got them a headlock. Can I punch them? <laughs> sure. You know, so that gets tricky and you want to make sure that the stuff all, 
is quick and easy to resolve and feels authentic when you're doing it, which is not always an easy thing to pull off because uh, because it's a simulation. Right. right? Reality is hard to simulate, even if you're doing video games, which are you know these beautiful physics engines in them that people have been developing for decades. But when you're trying to do it so that somebody can do it on the fly, out of their own brain, at a table, uh, in the in the moment, in the instant, that's a real challenge, right? But you know that's part of the fun. Honestly, I like doing that. Part of it is also, as I was discussing with some people, is it salt to taste, right? Some people like it to be really, really into the teeth of the gears and figure everything out. And um, like Champions, for instance, was a superhero game where they broke it down to twelfths of a second. Wow! You know, so that you could figure out. Uh, how fast your super speed guys go, whatever else. And then there are other games where like, well, you're fast. Yeah. There you go. Good luck. You know, <laughs> and, uh, we want to have something in between that's, uh, you know, reasonable to either side, mm-hmm. uh, but that you know, won't scare people away at the same time too. Right. Because honestly, I played champions when I was a kid. I loved it. But uh, at this age, I'm like, ah, nobody really needs to know what the hell I'm doing every 12th of a second. Right? <laughs> it's just too much. Yeah, for sure. Okay, and you're right. There's, Game, different games for different tastes. Exactly. But when it, when you're doing world building for games, I guess what in your opinion is the hardest part? What is the most daunting or challenging piece? I think the hardest part for any kind of game design is the parts that don't interest you personally. Ooh. Right. Uh, the things are going to bore you. Right. That you know somebody else is going to be interested in. That uh, you've got feedback that says, yeah, the players really care about uh, car chase rules. And you just don't give a damn about car chase rules. Right. <laughs> But, you know, you got to put them in there anyway. And then you're like, well, now I got to spend a lot of time thinking about car chase rules. And I don't know a whole shitload about car chase because it's not something I've studied and given anything about for years and years. So now I got to sit down and think about this profoundly. The things you don't want to do are always the hardest, right? (laughs) My kids deal with this too. Like, you know, it's like while you're in school, you like to read. But as soon as somebody tells you you have to do something, it sucks a lot of the fun out of it. And as a, as a game designer, a lot of times, uh, and even as a writer, if you're a professional, a lot of times you have to do things that you would normally just love to tinker with all damn day long. But uh, because you are being paid to do it and are on deadlines, suddenly it sucks the fun out of it, right? Um, but, you know, as I always say, it beats uh, digging ditches for a living. So, uh, you know, it's much better than the alternative. Yeah, you know? for sure. Having birthdays, for instance, is always better than the alternative. As hard as it can be. Good saying. Um, yeah, I guess people on the outside maybe need to remember that it is still a job. It's fun and and it's a blast yeah. and it's a good job, but it's still got its days where it's a grind. Oh, God, there are a lot of days where you just, uh, it's basically to just sit down and you're uh, trying to pull things out of your head with an ice cream scoop. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's not a lot of fun. But on the other hand, it's also the best goddamn thing in the world, right? Yeah. Um, because you get to do the things you're excited about. You get to entertain people. You get to help other people have fun. Uh, I, I don't complain about it no. because of that, right? And I know there are a lot of harder jobs out there, and I find this one very fulfilling to do. But, uh, you know, there's a reason I get paid to do it, and other people don't get paid to do it, I guess, <laughs> uh, because I, I've shown that I've got some uh, some skill at it, some talent at sure. it, and I'm able to keep at it and make a living at it. So um, it's, again, it, it does sometimes take some of the fun out of it, but it's always fun at the end of the day. I actually, my big secret for that is learning how to enjoy the process, right? If you enjoy the process of doing it, then it becomes less of a pain to you, right? Like for writing, I like, I actually like stringing words together and arranging them in sentences and then in paragraphs and 
and in uh, you know chapters and everything else. I actually enjoy the process of doing that, right? If I if you can enjoy it on the moment by moment basis, then the stuff you have to do week by week becomes a lot easier for you, right? right? And then you're not thinking about I'm doing this only I'm doing this horrible, hateful, difficult thing because of money and glory and all that kind of shit. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, the money isn't always great and the glory often doesn't come. So you better enjoy what you're doing in the moment. Right. If you can pull that off, then you've already won, no matter if the money and the glory show up. Right. That's a good bit of wisdom for life in general. You can tell them in my older years and lecturing my children a lot. Later, <laughs> <I guess. laughs> Speaking of enjoyment and doing what you love, which do you prefer doing? Novel writing or game design or? Yeah, I like them both a lot. The thing I really enjoy about novels is it's just me, and I don't have to worry about anybody else telling me I'm doing it wrong. Right, right. I don't. You don't play test a novel. You can, you know, have beta readers. You can do that, but uh, I'm pretty decent at it. And at that point, it's just a matter of polishing and making it better. You're getting feedback from people to make it better. Uh, whereas with games, a lot of times people say, "No, nope, no, nope, that's just wrong." <laughs> right. Well, now I got to figure out how to fix that, or do I have to even listen to you? That's the other questions. Um, <laughs> On the other hand, I mean, they're you know, games are one of the uh, you know, it's a fairly young art form, but I just freaking adore it. I mean, it's one of those things where, if you want to make an an impression upon an industry, if you want to make an imprint on something, you know, novels have been around for hundreds of years, right? And you can go into Barnes and Noble and whatever and see that you're competing with everybody from Shakespeare on up, uh, as far as what kind of books you're selling. Right. Uh, whereas with you know tabletop role playing games, it's been going for not quite fifty years, and I've been doing it for thirty years. So I get an early start on it, um, but it's it's a field in which you can you know have some effect and make an impression and maybe char- help chart the future of it. So uh, for that, I actually really enjoy it. And also, I mean, just uh, giving other people the chance to have fun, right? You're giving them tools to play with as opposed to telling them how to do things. That's exciting. Uh, or just giving them a story. Yeah, there's, there's something brilliant about giving people a story, but there's also something amazing about helping them come up with their own stories, right? And the great, the wonderful thing, the magical thing really about tabletop role-playing is those stories often only exist in that moment and are never repeated again, right? I mean, now we have streaming and critical role and you know, people can watch them over and over and over for that select group of people. But for most of us, mm-hmm. you know, that one moment you had at a table at a convention or with your friends or whatever, it's that group of people there that shared it and yeah. nobody else ever gets to be part of that ever again. And that's kind of fun. That's magical. That's what, that's what got me addicted when I was a kid for sure is, is those moments we shared as friends. Yeah. And it's yours. Nobody else gets it. Now on the other hand, if you want to share it, it becomes more of a problem, but <laughs> you know, I think you treasure it more because it's fleeting the same way that you treasure the own encounters in your own life over reading about somebody else's. Right. Right. Yeah. 100%. So out of all the millions of gamers out there, not every one of them is going to try and write a novel, but sure. they're all, not all, but a lot of them are going to try and build their own worlds or build their own game mechanics or do their own okay. world building for games. What kind of advice do you have for that home DM who just wants to build his own world to play in? There are two different ways to attack it, really. And you know, you can go high concept for the large thing and say, okay, this is what's different about this world. This is what's going on. This is how it affects everything. And this is how it cascades over every aspect of society and technology and how people interact with each other or whatever else. Uh, Or you can start small and say, this is what's happening in your home. This is what's happening in your favorite bar. This is what's happening in your hometown, whatever. And then spread out from there. I mean, try to stick to the things that you enjoy doing. Again. <laughs> That's good. Uh, if you enjoy doing geopolitical intrigue, go for it. 
you know, if you're more about uh, interpersonal uh, traumas and you know uh, all sorts of adventures, that kind of stuff, do the local stuff first. You know, do the stuff that entertains you. If you stall out early because you think you need to do something else, you're never going to get to the rest of it, right? Do the stuff that's exciting you first. And then hopefully you get so excited about that stuff that your momentum carries you through to the things that are more painful. For yeah. you. you know, like if you just really don't care about, oh, the other thing I would say is steal liberally from reality, right? <laughs> Ken Height's a good one about that. And you're like, I don't know why the hell in original D&D they're like, well, you know, 20 platinum pieces makes this, whatever, you know why not just use a decimal system? I'm sure maybe you're trying to recreate the old English pound shilling stuff. But, yeah. You know, there's a reason that nobody does that anymore is because it's a pain in the ass. So why do you want to make your players memorize stuff that <laughs> at the end of the day really doesn't matter except as maybe a little bit of color. So, you know, borrow liberally from reality, try to make things simple on yourself and the people around you and have fun with it. Remember at the, at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is create an engine for fun. Right. And if it's just depressing, awful, mean-spirited, nasty, whatever, unless that's your bag and <laughs> your friend's bag, you probably don't want to go there, right? Uh, yeah. you know, try to do something that is going to excite them. Think about the kinds of movies, the games, st- books, whatever that you enjoy, and try to do something in that vein as opposed to something you think you should do because it's more serious and artistic. Right? For sure. And you touch on an important part is – Talk to your group, see what the group is into, make sure that that's in. Um... Exactly. I mean, and, you know, getting a group on the same page is hard, right? <laughs> so you know, I, I'm, most of my games devolve into joke sessions, right? It's like, we all know each other, you know, doesn't matter how serious the subject matter is, unless you've really got people on the edge of their seats and you can't maintain them there forever. Right. At some point there's Monty Python jokes coming out, you know, it's guaranteed. It's just what's going to happen. So uh, because somebody needs to break the tension and, you know, Either you're going to be this draconian asshole who says, no, we're doing it my way, or you're going to have fun with your friends, which is what you're there for. Yeah. Right. On the other side of the whole equation, if somebody does have that gene where they are driven to write and I feel sorry for them, um, <laughs> what, do you, what advice do you have specific to world building, specific to the task of world building for the creation of a novel? I, I think uh, when you're writing a novel, the novel itself, the story itself, what people are reading, that's always paramount. You have to remember that first and foremost. If your world building gets in the way of what you're doing, you should change your world building. Nice. Right? If there's an element in your story that's like, well, I'd like to do this, but I, I've decided that it doesn't work that way in this world. I'm like, well, you made that up. Mm-hmm. Right? There's no reason you can't change that to make it a better story. Right now, if you got some, if 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 you really think that needs to be in there and it needs to be this way, bang your head against the wall for a while and see if you can get the answer to fall out. Right. Uh, and if it can, you know, bless you, you've done some good work there. But uh, at the end of the day, the most important thing is the story. And the story should be entertaining to people. And when I say entertaining, I don't mean it's got to be a laugh a minute or, you know, an adventure thrill ride or whatever. Every story is entertaining in its own way. Even the most miserable, sordid, awful, horrible, horrific stories are entertaining to people. That's why they read them, right? Yeah. They wouldn't read them if they weren't actually enjoying them on some level, Right. So remember that when you're telling the story, the story is always paramount, whether it's the characters or the world. Some people start with the characters as opposed to the world and then build the world around the characters, right? Mm -hmm. Because the characters are very important. That's your viewpoint for the entire story. If you're just building a world and putting generic people in it to kind of tour you around it, 
that gets dull pretty quickly. Nobody really wants to read through the eyes of a robot that's just kind of wandering around as a tour guide. Right. right? You want to actually have a plot and care about the people inside of it as well mm-hmm. as the world around them. So, and, you know, it's a difficult, difficult balancing act pull off, especially if you're trying to do speculative fiction in some way where you're coming up with these great new ideas, you want to show them to people. But, you know, if it's just an exposition dump where you're saying, and hey, look at all this cool shit, you might as well just do a gaming source book, right? (laughs) Because you're basically just doing a setting book with a personal tour guide. Exactly. So story first, obviously. There's that old saying, um, and there's been debate about it, whether or not the setting is a character. What is your stance on the whole right. idea of setting as a character? You know, I understand why people, why, why they do that. I mean, because we're writers and everything's a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Settings aren't actually characters or settings, right? But they can feel like a character because they've got so much personality, because they can morph and change, because they can, you know, different things can happen to them. So they feel like a character in that sense. And, be, you know, because we're writers, everybody, when you're a writer, everything becomes a metaphor for something else, yeah. right? This, this, story is like a character this setting is like a character my car is like a character i don't know it's um you know it's uh so i i definitely think that if you get some really flavorful background settings whatever that have an impact upon everything that people can think that that it feels like a character because it it's not so much that it acts and functions like a character but it is just as important to the story as a character is mm-hmm. right. And people are just as intrigued by it as a character as they would be by a really good character. So in that sense, I think it's absolutely true. I mean, I think you should be uh, striving for that. I think you should be, you know, hoping that your, your background, your setting, whatever is, is that exciting. Now, on the other hand, you know, I think people confuse complicated and uh, exotic with exciting sometimes, right. You know, a bodega in New York city can be just as goddamn as exciting as uh, the world of Game of Thrones, right? You know, uh, told by the right storyteller and having the right impact upon the characters, that can be just as as forceful and just as much of a character as something that's much more exotic. That makes right? sense, yeah. Okay, so that's the contrasting, but as far as comparison, what are some key elements that the two crafts share? Well, I think that they share a lot. I mean, uh, again, you're trying to think about stories. You're thinking in terms about what's going to interest people, right? You're thinking about things that are fun. You're thinking about things that are entertaining. So even if you're doing a, a backstory for a game or a backstory for a novel, whatever, it's all about entertainment at the end of the day. I mean, there's tons of stuff I cut from the Marvel game, for instance, because like, yeah, that's neat. I'm really, you know, but uh, no, forget it. It's not, it's too complicated. It's too, uh, nobody's going to want to play with us. The original edition that we had for the Marvel role-playing game, for instance, had uh, the playtest edition that came out last April, had these archetype tables that were like 25 by 25 matrices and, you know, like had all these numbers and everything. And it made a lot of sense mathematically. Right. My co-designer actually had a doctorate in mathematics, right? And I'm like, that's great. But at a certain point, I'm looking at it going, I, you know, I'm having a hard time doing this. And I did fourth term calculus. So I don't have a doctorate in math, but... <laughs> If I'm struggling trying to put all this shit down and and maintain it, then maybe our players are going to struggle too. Right. We don't want to do that. So, you know, uh, try to make things easy for people. I actually think about that as a writer of novels as well. It's like I was describing um, my style to one of my kids the other day. He was taking creative writing class, and I'm like, my my ambition for style has never been to be a great stylist in the sense that you would stop and say, "Oh wow, what a great way to put that." I mean, if it happens, it happens, right? But um, my ambition is always to have people forget their reading mm. right to be so enmeshed uh, so engrossed in the story to forget that these are they're actually moving their eyes along 
these squiggly lines on a piece of paper mm -hmm. and they're actually just transported to that world. And uh, I find that if you're doing fancy stuff with your writing, flexing your vocabulary too much, pulling off tricks, that tends to jar people out of that because they go, oh, well, that was a great piece of writing. But if you're thinking that's a great piece of writing, you're not in the story, right? And to me, that's much more important is to, to get people seamlessly into it. And in the same sense with the game, uh, the mechanics, the backstory, those should almost just vanish into the background, right? You don't want to think about what's on your character sheet when you're trying to have a dialogue with somebody in the, in the story. You want to just be able to do it mm -hmm. and, and not think about the details or trying to min-max or optimize your character. You just want to know, okay, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. Yeah. feels right when it's done right. That's fantastic. You're basically creating tools for people to enter flow state. Exactly, right? And man, flow state. I love flow state. Yeah, me too. I, I seek it as a writer, right? It's uh, so I used to call it, uh, it, like when you're playing basketball, they'd say you're unconscious from the floor. You know, you're just sinking three-pointers from everywhere, right? Yeah. And the moment you start thinking about it, it screws you up. The whole point is getting that flow state where you're not thinking about it anymore. You're just in the act of creation. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing that as a writer or as a game designer or whatever, you could be at your keyboard for eight hours, look up and say, holy shit, look what I've just done here. It's an amazing amount of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's going to be entertaining. Um, and if you're not in the flow state, it can be like pulling teeth, right? So, flow state is one hell of a drug. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, it's one of those things a lot of people don't really grok. You know, they're like, well, I, I just it's it's troublesome. Like, no, no, if you can. I had this conversation with Monty Cook once and we're like, you know, uh, eight one hour stints at something is not the same as as one eight hour stint because if you sit there for eight hours it often takes you like 15 20 minutes just to gear up and get into that flow state and once you're in it you kind of got to maintain it in a sense it's like drinking alcohol <laughs> at, okay. at a bar if you if you're what, what do we call it there's a moment in when you're playing pool uh where you're you're really good at pool because you've had a beer or two but you if you have a few more beers you're going to suck you're yeah, gonna get yeah. Sloppy, and you're gonna i know the state you're talking right? about Right. But if you've had one or two beers, just enough to relax and get out of your own brain for a minute, then you're suddenly really good at it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there's a good word for it. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but it's just, it's that, uh, that, uh, that balanced moment, that tipping point. If you can hit that, you can do it. With, it doesn't take drugs or alcohol. You can do it just with your mind. If you get in the right state and the right flow. But often I would do the same thing when I was a college shooting pool. Right. I'm like, well, uh, give me one or two beers. I'll be great. Give me three or four. We're in real trouble. Yep. Right. But right now, and then you want to be able to maintain that state for a while if you can, yeah. whether it's at the bar or in front of your keyboard, it's just tricky. How would you say the consideration of the game system impacts the world building? Like let's say a fresh designer is trying to build a body of work. Should they consider what system they're building for? Right. I do think, I do think the system matters. I, I think, uh, if it didn't matter, then we shouldn't bother with it, right? And obviously, we'd like to bother with it. So, <laughs> but I also think I think your your choice of system, and you know, part of that is like whether or not you're going to design your own system, as opposed to picking up one of the dozens of freely available systems that are already out. There, True. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you can always grab one that's like Blades in the Dark, or you know, Fifth Edition, or you know, the new Cipher system, whatever thing. Uh, there's all sorts of different games you just pick up and go with, right? Then you want to, I think a lot of it just determines like how complex you want things to be. Yeah. Are you more about what's going on here? Or are you more about the modeling, right? Are you more about the story or the modeling? A lot of times those are the two yep. things you're going with. Are you more about the characters in the moment? Are you more about the physics model, right? 
you know, how complex do you want to be? How much attention do you want that to be paid to? Like one of my favorite games is Fiasco, right? Which is a game that has fairly simple mechanics. I mean, you can actually, uh, it's a role, tabletop role-playing game by Jason Morningstar. has no game master at all, hmm. right? Uh, and it's the new version, I think it's card-based, which I haven't played yet. The original edition was uh, dice-based. And you could sit around a table, and uh, usually it's better with four players, but you can get up to like six if you need to, or down to three. And you have a relationship with the person on your left and the person on your right. You don't know the people across from you, okay. right? And those relationships can be twisted, awful things. Uh, uh, Jason calls it, uh, Fiasco is the game that models um, uh, violent people with poor impulse control. <laughs> so it's like a Coen Brothers movie just waiting to happen. <laughs> right things are just going to go wrong. Okay. And uh, it's always one shots because you know the end, the end is like half the crew is dead. <laughs> Maybe if you're lucky, um, and so it's just a fun game where you just uh, you just sit down. You can you can come up with a playset for it in like an hour, right? And uh, have fun with it. Uh, and I did one for my um, Brave New World books, I think at one point. No, my Dangerous Games books at one point. Uh, I saw that there was one for uh, uh, the Mountain Goats that came out recently too. Right? Okay, they're like okay, great. You know, just it's good fun, uh, but it's this neat game where you just sit down and you start playing. And, if, and it's really about the interaction between the characters and you're modeling that and the mechanics actually lead. Uh, there's a bit halfway through the game where there's something called the tilt where everything goes wrong. Everything's been leading up to this point and it's suddenly some something horrible happens and it's all downhill from here. Right. Okay. And, you know, if you have a game like that that models what you're trying to go after, that's great. Now, the world building part of it is now you have to come up with a world that fits that, you know, something right, seedy, right, yeah, yeah. terrible, horrible, whatever, uh, that, that fits that kind of an ethos that's going to work well with that. Uh, you know, if you're thinking about high heroic type stuff, then, you know, D&D might be your thing for fantasy type stuff. You know, if you're thinking for superheroes, find a superhero system, right? Because these things are built to bring out the things that people care about most in those settings. Right. right. When I do the Marvel game, I'm thinking about superpowers and, you know, punching people through walls and, you know, uh, throwing cars and shooting laser beams out of your eyes and stuff like that. Right. So yeah. that's those are the things that people get excited about these kind of uh, when you're watching stuff on a screen or reading a comic or whatever else. So that's going to inform your world building. And if you uh, so I do think it is important. Now, you depends. Again, how do you want to start? If you get a world that you already know what it's going to be like. You might want to go look for a rule system that looks like that, or you might want to come up with your own. I mean, the mm. reason people come up with their own systems and their own stories or whatever else is because what you want is not already out there, right? Gotcha. Uh, if uh, if it was already out there, you just use that, right? You just pick it up off the shelf and, and go. But um, that's the reason some of the best stories in the world are, you know, often the writer will say, you know, I wanted this story, but nobody else had written it. So I had to do it. Yeah, you hear that. And it's the same with games. You know, I wanted this game. I wanted it to work like this. And it wasn't out there, so I had to make it. Mm -hmm. uh, and you'll find that whether you're working with games or stories or whatever else, a lot of times you're just finding the the holes that exist. And the funny part is those holes may be only apparent to you as a creator because you're thinking, well, I want to do this and I can't find the thing that I want to do. So I have to make it. Now, the question is, will anybody else care? There's, you know, who the hell knows? The, the magic of the internet is now you can you know, connect with, if there's three people in the world that care about it, you can probably find them. <laughs> um, it may not be enough people to care that you're ever going to be able to, you know, buy a house with it. But, you know, it, uh, it might be enough that from a creative point of view, it's absolutely worthwhile for you to do. 100%. Um, slight tangent with everything that's happened recently with 
well, not so recently now, but with the whole OGL and Orc and Black Flag. Yeah. So there's a lot of people racing now to create systems or finish systems they've been working on. Do you think there's an impact on the quality because so many people are reacting to fill a gap or hit a market condition? Well, I think I think it's always a hard, it's always a wrong move, I think, to chase a market, right? Uh, because especially for things like this and take time, uh, by the time you finish, the market will move on. Right. right. If you happen to have something in your pocket that fits, hey, good, you you hit the lottery. You're yep. the lucky person this year, right? Uh, but if you have to go develop something for a market condition that existed at a certain particular point in time, very likely the market will move down. And honestly, as soon as uh, D&D came out and said, you know, uh, Hasbro came out and said, well, by the way, actually, we screwed up. Here's the whole thing for free. Yeah. It's like, well, that kind of took the wind out of the whole let's do alternate thing sales, right? Yeah. Um now that doesn't mean those alternate things can't be fantastic things. I'm consulting with the guys over uh, at Cool Name Goes Here, which is a, a generic role-playing game that they want to do. That's going to be uh, given away and uh, open up freely to the entire community. Oh, that's right? cool. Yeah. And I'm big. It's Mark Tasson who's running. Used to run the uh, Writers Workshop, uh, Writers Symposium at Gen Con for many years, and uh, has done a lot of uh, game design since then. And he's got a great group of people who are working on with him. Nice. I'm just doing some consulting on it, right? But you know it's hard to it's hard to hit those things. But you know there's going to be some interesting things. Uh, Black flag coming from uh, Cobalt Press. I think what it's going to do is you're going to end up seeing a lot of newer games come out that are going to be a little bit different than what the OGL and what Fifth Edition has done. Yeah, I think that's okay. I think um, one of the things people have have forgotten about is when you buy into the system, the fifth edition system, which I think is a great system. I like to people work on it. I've done a lot of D and D stuff. For yeah, yeah. But when you do that, uh, you're not just tapping into their stuff so you can use it for yourself. You're helping grow their influence. Right. And that's the whole point. It's all about network externalities where, you know, the more people are using something, the more valuable it becomes. Yeah. Right. So, but when you do that, that means you're growing, Hasbro's property. You're not growing your property, so to speak, from a game design point of view, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you may feel some ownership over that. You may, you know, now even have some ownership in a communal sense, but it's uh, it's still not yours. And if you want to do your own thing, you should go do your own thing, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, before the OGL came out, uh, most of us were game designers just made up our own games all the time. We said, well, we can't use that, so we're going to do our own version of it. And I think the main thing the OGL did for us is it stopped people from having these things that uh, Ron Edwards used to call fantasy heartbreakers, which were games that were just like D&D, but changed just a couple of small things because this is the thing that really stuck in the craw of the person who, who uh, was designing the game. Gotcha. And they were called fantasy heartbreakers because they were fantasy role-playing games that were doomed to break the heart of the designer, right? Because oh. no matter how much you love them, nobody else, not enough other people are going to love them. Somebody would love them, but not enough other people are going to love them. It wasn't like suddenly everybody was playing D&D was going to see the light and say, yes, you're right, and then jump right over, right? Yeah. So it, it killed off a lot of that. You could actually go out and do your own fantasy heartbreaker freely and easily and, and open up to the community and everything else, which is great. But it also killed off a bit of innovation in the uh, in the tabletop game design area because a lot of people would just say, well, why would I want to come up with my own system? This one works perfectly well, and I can do anything I want to with it. The answer is no, you you can't do anything you want to with it, but maybe it's not the best tool. I mean, you can you can turn a screw with a hammer, sure. <laughs> maybe it's not the right one to use. That is an excellent analogy. In my opinion, as an amateur outsider who's studied game design and writing and just loves it so much, 
in my experience doing homebrew world building, I like to draw a line between game design and game mechanics and world building culture, naming structures, all that kind of stuff. But you'll see in a lot of games, the two are tied together, like um, heritage affecting traits and feats being selected based on, on your background, stuff like that. What's your opinion? I think you, I think that they do need to meld together at certain levels because otherwise they're just uh, mix and match. Like, yeah, you know, like the old Garanimals you had as a kid, the different clothing. You're like, I get this shirt and these pants, they go together. You know, you walk off with them, right? But uh, that that belies any kind of artistry to it. And um, I, th- I think most things, most entertainment forms like that should dovetail together nicely, right? Now, for instance, give you an example, the shotguns and sorcery setting that I came up with that we did novels for, I did novels for. We did originally a cipher system game with that. And originally when I came up with it, it was meant to be a third edition setting. And then my wife got pregnant with quadruplets. And I'm like, well, I got to show that for a while because I'm too busy. <laughs> so then I came back to doing novels with it. And then uh, uh, we had the opportunity to do a cipher system game. And we did that. And we had Rob Schwab come in. And the cipher system, there, it's got a whole sub-economy based around cheap magic items as opposed to uh, by cheap, I mean they they're easily they come and go easy. You, you grab them and use them. You grab them and use it because you know there's always more coming, right? Yeah. Kind of like gold pieces in D and D. D and D's got a gold uh, economy, right? Cipher system has a little magic item economy. They call them ciphers. Yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. And so we changed some elements of the setting in the in the cipher system uh, game to fit that. Right. We had this little subsystem. Where, like, we know this is an important part of the game. So we're going to have these little magic items. I just hadn't thought about ever implementing in any sense. And we're going to put them in there. And then later on, we did a fifth edition game. We're like, oh, hmm. now we have all these little goddamn magic items. I guess we're going to flip them back and put them into this other system. And, but they're not going to work quite the same way. And they're going to have other uh, an, a, analogous things from D&D that'll work with this. And it, it was a little bit different, right? The, the right. flavor of it, the way you play it comes across a little bit differently because of that. And I think that's okay. In fact, I think that's freaking wonderful. I think it should, I think the system should have an effect upon what's happening, right? Okay. Now, I think the the setting, I mean, hell, I'd, I would do, I had Lester Smith did is, he's got this game, I think it's the 66 system or something like that, right? Uh, where you roll, it's a little, Lester was one of the original, well, worked for TSR for many years and Game Designers Workshop before that. He's a great friend of mine. Um, and he did a system that was like roll two six-sided dices, di- dice and multiply them, right? Yeah. Um, and it was a neat little easy system. And he wrote up a shotguns and sorcery setting for that was like four or five pages, right? Uh, and, you know, the neat thing about the setting is you could take it and you can meld it to different things, right? right. Uh, I've written comic books for that. I've written novels for that. I've written games for that. Every one of those is different. Every one of those tries to respect the medium in which it occurs, in which you're bringing it to. And if you're, even if you're talking about different systems, each system is its own sub-media, uh, sub-medium, and right. then you want to be able to tailor it to that as well, right? You always want to make sure you're, you're dovetailing them better. There's artistry in making those two things fit together so they appear to be a whole, right? a seamless whole, as opposed to two things that were slapped together. And it, that, it sounds to me like that's the key takeaway here today is, Respect the story, put the story first, and figure out how to blend storytelling and world building into one. Yeah, I agree. That's, I mean, the consumer, if you want to put it that way, whoever, you know, the reader, player, whatever, they don't care. They want to be able to use what you put in front of them, right? They don't care if the world building came first, the mechanics came first, the story came first. They just want it to be, again, a seamless whole that is presented to them 
as something that's as easy and fun to use as possible. And that's your job, whether you're the writer, the designer, the artist, whatever the hell you're doing, is to make that a, something they can use, right? Brilliant. Well, my friend, that is what I wanted to pull out of your brain. <laughs> well, thank um, you. That was fun. <laughs> do you have anything? What's happening in your world? What do you got for projects, things that have come out recently? Anything you want to talk about? Uh, let's see. I got the Shotguns and Sorcery 5th Edition game, which you got on, or the source book you have on your shelf there. It is beautiful. I haven't released that to the public yet because I'm waiting on one of my sons to do the Shard Tabletop version. We promised all the Kickstarter backers. Once that's out, then we'll release it to the public. But I always like to make sure the Kickstarter backers get everything before everybody else does. We appreciate so, that. So uh, that's the last little bit there. And, you know, hopefully everybody back to is having a great time with it. Um, so that'll be coming out sometime later this year. Uh, we have the Marvel role-playing game, Marvel multiverse role-playing game that's coming out in on August 2nd, Ooh. which is the Wednesday of Gen Con. Uh, also happens to be a couple days before my birthday, so I'm excited about that. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of other stuff I'm forgetting, but that's the main stuff right now. Excellent, excellent. Are you gearing up for the Diana Jones Awards, or are you still involved heavily? Yeah, no. I, I, the funny, I'm actually running the Diana Jones Awards. I've been running it for a long time now. James Wallace was the guy who co-founded it, and uh, or actually came up with the original idea, and then I took over. He's fully out now. I'm fully on, and we actually became a foundation last year, nonprofit charity. Congrats. Yeah, thank you. And then we are now 501c3 status, which means that it's a tax write-off and people donate to us. Mm -hmm. And the main reason we did that is because we stopped being just this group of people that said, we thought this was the coolest thing in game this year and became uh, the people doing the emerging designer program too, where we take a group of young designers, doesn't have to be young, actually, people who are getting into game design the last three or four years, right? right. Uh, no matter what their age is or whatever. And uh, are basically bringing them out to Gen Con to show them off, show them around, and kind of bring them into the fold. And in that sense, we're trying to encourage and uh, make things easier for new gamers, new game designers to uh, reach a larger audience and for the larger audience to enjoy their work, right? Um, and we're, we're, we focus on marginalized people too, uh, but not exclusively, but, uh, you know, they're, historically it's been white straight dudes, of which I am, you know, one. So it's worked it's worked out well for me in the past but i think that uh, a healthy a healthy gaming community a healthy community of any kind is as diverse as possible Amen. and brings in new fresh voices otherwise you end up being the straight white guys who are sitting in the basement playing with your railroad uh miniatures uh and nobody ever joining you for the fun right yeah. and where's the fun in that so exactly. we're trying to bring in as many different new voices as we can and hopefully we're doing some regular family fantastic love it all right, my friend, I thank you as always for your wisdom, and I look forward to the next time we have a chat. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. That concludes another conversation around the table. I want to thank Matt again for sitting down. As always, his wisdom is enlightening and entertaining. I can't wait to have him back here on the show. And I look forward to seeing you again next week here at the Corner of Story and Game.